This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is uh, Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Wow. It's taken a while, but I'm finally, finally <laughs> welcoming Whitney Webb. Thank you for joining me, Whitney, in the trenches. Uh, hey, it's great to be here. Sorry I took so long. Uh, I don't I don't know if, well, uh, your viewers know, but I uh, recently had a, a little person, uh, a baby. So uh, that was about three months ago. And uh, before then, you know, I sort of had to wind stuff down, uh, interviews and stuff. So. Uh, it's nice to sort of be easing back into the the I don't know uh, the world of interviews during uh, an increasingly crazy time. <laughs> <laughs> it is crazy, isn't it? I mean, I I welcomed yeah. you and I welcome all the other guests to the trenches because it feels like we're in a war. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I don't want people to think I'm citing Alex Jones necessarily, but it, it really is an info <laughs> war. Uh, he's not the only one to to say that, though. I mean, you have videos of people like Hillary Clinton saying, like, we're losing the info war and we have to win it. And, you know, I think these days, actually, it's being incre increasingly waged by, like, AI on the sides of uh, the governments and things like that. They've sort of outsourced it. So maybe that's why it's uh, getting sometimes it seems like it's easier to sort of pick apart than it was even a few years ago. Um, anyway. Whitney, you're American, but you, you are in Chile. Now I say Chile, yeah. you say Chile, but I actually prefer your pronunciation because it sounds more fancy. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it, it's, that's how you say it in Spanish, Chile. So, Chile. but most people like to say like chili in English, like the, like the pepper. Um, it's not like that, <laughs> <laughs> but it, lo it looks like one. Yeah, I know how how convenient. I guess people assume that there's an association, but um, there's not. There's not. Why are you there? Uh, it's kind of a long story. Um, so I graduated um, from university. I was already pretty, really disillusioned with uh, the U.S., especially people my age. Uh, and I, uh, I'm 32, if that helps. Um, I, I was studying for a master's degree. Uh, but I thought the program was too easy. Uh, it was like my high school. So um, I, I don't know. I had some other personal crap going on and I ended up just like leaving and taking a job in Peru <laughs> in the middle of nowhere um, because I actually in university had double majored. Uh, so I, I double majored in like um, agroecology and then on the other side, sort of in a, on religious studies. And that's what I was uh, doing a, a master's degree on uh, the academic study of religion, by the way. So uh, but that got increasingly political, which sort of got me in trouble on that master's program I was doing because uh, they originally wanted me because I'd done a bunch of work on uh, Chinese spirit mediums in Malaysia. I know this sounds really crazy, uh, but I ended up uh, doing my thesis on uh, the influence of some of these like extremist religious groups on U.S. politics. Um, and I got really intrigued by this group called The Family if you've ever heard of them, uh, no. uh, they're, I just thought it was really crazy that like they had a lot of influence on politics and, um, that like a, a very high percentage of people in Congress were members and it was never talked about. And I was like, why don't I know about this? And so I kept sort of like pushing the envelope and they didn't like that. <laughs> and they were like, go back to the Chinese stuff, go. And I was like, I didn't want to. So anyway, 
uh, I ended up uh, working and managing a, a farm, going back to the agroecology side of things um, in, in Peru for an, uh, an expat, uh, a Cuban-American expat living in the literally the middle of nowhere, Peru. Uh, it, it was interesting, interesting experience. Uh, but then uh, I ended up not working there. Um, and I didn't really have money to go back to the U.S. because I was, you know, mm. <laughs> not exactly making like a U.S. wage uh, while I lived there. Um, so I ended up, uh, working in Cusco, Peru for like a, a year in food service, uh, which I had worked in previously in a uh, university. Um, and, uh, then I went back to the States for, uh, a year, uh, still hated it. Went back, tried to do the farm again, did food service again in Peru, and then just went down to Chile cause, uh, things in Peru did, uh, I needed to leave. I don't really want to explain why, but. Uh, something happened. So I ended up going to Chile with one of my uh, best friends at the restaurant I worked at. And that's how I ended up down here. <laughs> and I've just and stayed. You... Hmm? No, go on. Oh, I just ended up staying in Chile. That was like 2014 uh, when I ended up down here. Oh, okay. So you're not, you're not stuck there because of, I don't know, vaccine mandates or you know, Well, I, I, I probably could be now. I was for a period because they didn't let unvaccinated people leave Chile unless you had like a good excuse uh, or an emergency. Uh, now they, uh, you know, don't let unvaccinated people into Chile. So that's another complicated state of affairs. It's all right, though. Uh, a few minutes ago, you were just telling me that there's a new president. Uh, yeah, his name is uh, Gabriel Boric. I'm not really a fan uh, because I think he's sort of uh, the the equivalent of what Obama was for the United States, sort of selling themselves as this era of great change, undoing Bush Cheney in the case of Boric, undoing the the remnants of the Pinochet era. And all of this stuff sort of framing themselves as these, uh, you know, uh, democratic socialist uh, revolutionaries that are going to change everything, mm. I think. Uh, and then, of course, it turned out right in the in Obama's case that his whole cabinet was basically picked by Citigroup, by by Wall Street, you know, and he uh, was a total warmonger and, and, you know, killed a bunch of people. Um uh, Yeah. So basically, you know, Boric in, in that sense is, uh, has since been just like. I think there's just been a lot of signs that he's not who he said he who he uh, yeah. sold himself as being. Uh, so after he was elected, uh, there was a talk among his team of bringing in current vice president of the U.S., Kamala Harris, to advise his transition team. Uh, so uh, right away, you know that he's not really the anti-imperialist, anti-gringo uh, leader that he claimed that he was going to be, because for those that 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 don't know, the Pinochet era was the you know it, the installation of the Pinochet dictatorship, and he was installed by the U.S. basically. <laughs> so if you're going to be like a U.S. puppet, basically, it doesn't make sense um, for you to be like you know. It's just complicated. Um, on, on the other side, uh, his one of his main advisors is a WEF Young Global Leader from the class of 2021 last year, uh, is Kia Sichez. Uh, she used to be head of the College of Medicine uh, uh, of, of Chile, uh, but instead of putting her in as health minister, they've put her in as interior minister, which gives her control over the police and the armed forces, which I uh, am a little wary about why they'd put the one young global leader in the government in that position, but that's what happened. Um, and then some other things, uh, he was caught by accident 
supposedly reading a book by Bill Gates about how to stop the climate crisis. <laughs> so, you know, he thinks Bill Gates is the climate expert uh, now with all his PhDs in climate science. Um, but he's also the expert on, on health. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a he's, great medical yeah, doctor. He's, he's the expert on everything, uh, I guess. <laughs> that's, what, that's, that's the cool thing about, you know, having enough money to launder your reputation into like this nebulous philanthropist that you can direct money towards any cause and then uh, frame yourself as an expert in that cause just because you like threw some cash at some people. Um, that's pretty much what Gates does. I'm convinced that you're only giving me the limited hangout version of these people. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a lot to go into them, right? So for people that are more interested, for example, on my the, the, the writing I've done on people like Bill Gates, you know, I've only really written about Bill Gates in the context of the Jeffrey Epstein relationship uh, and did a really deep dive on that that you can find in my upcoming book, but also on my uh, website as well. Uh, I believe I published it last May. Um, and basically it talks about how even though they, they, they like to claim they didn't meet each other until like 2011, it goes back to 1995, more or less. So so, so for those who didn't get it, I was obviously making a, a joke. Um, I was playing on, on Unlimited Hangout, which is your, your website. Now, it is. What does, what does that mean for those who don't know? Um, well, yeah, so it's a play on words uh, of Limited Hangout, which is basically... Um, I guess an intelligence speak for um, a media asset that sort of that only gives you part of the picture and intentionally obscures part of the uh, the bigger picture. Um, so what I strive to do um, in my work and on my website, because it's not just me, like I have some uh, contributors, uh, some other people whose work I pu publish, you know, uh, trying to give people the biggest picture possible. And obviously you can't include absolutely any everything about everything in every single article because then it would be like unreadable, you know. So mm. um, some people, of course... Um, like to accuse, you know, some things I write of, oh, you didn't mention this, oh, you're a limited hangout, uh, despite being named unlimited <laughs> hangout. But, you know, I, I, I have to try and make articles digestible and readable for the general public as well. Um, so, you know, I can't literally go down every rabbit hole. It would just be too convoluted and, and difficult to read in some cases, right? Um, uh, but I think I'm pretty open about the things I'm not knowledgeable about or the things I, I don't cover uh, because it's very hard to be an expert in absolutely everything. Some people expect um, uh, those of us in independent media uh, to literally know everything about everything. And, you know, I'm also like a, a human being. And I also happen to have like a, a four-year-old and a three-month-old baby. So, you know, I'm not exactly uh, awake all of the time. <laughs> so it, it's not exactly, um, it, it's kind of holding people to unrealistic expectations on some occasions. But the idea is that the behind the name is that it's like my my promise, I guess, or like my vision for the page is to try and uh, give the biggest picture whenever possible and uh, whatever information I find, even if I, uh, it doesn't like uh, make it unsettles me or I don't know what to make of it. I, I, I do my best mm -hmm. to include that in, in the pieces I write because the idea is to get to the truth. Right. And so like, even when I started writing, um, uh, back in 2016, you know, my views then and what I thought about how, you know, how things were then and what was really going on in the world then have obviously changed a lot um, over the course of doing this <laughs> full time for several years. Um, and I think that's true for a lot of people in, in this uh, field of work. Uh, you're basically taking your readers on, a, on, a, on the journey with you to try and uh, find out, you know, what's um, really going on. 
I think that's quite profound. Um, saying oh, that you. it's a journey. <laughs> well, so yeah, say, saying that it's a journey um, is a lot more honest um, because you're not claiming to know the truth. I mean, that's what that's I, what's happening. I out. don't. I just am doing my best to find out what it is and share what I find with people who who read. And I hope that they would, mm. uh, you know, I heavily source my work. That's one thing I really strive to do as well is to mm. have really like high quality sourcing in terms of quality and also of frequency um, in, in my articles uh, with the hope that people will uh, look at the sources I used and, uh, you know, reach their own conclusions um, about things. So, you know, because it's not really, you know, um, I think it's important for people to take responsibility for the information they consume to an extent. Um, you can't just take people's word for it because you, you like how they act, you know, on, yeah. on interviews or on social media or whatever, you have to sort of take some responsibility and go and look uh, and, and engage with the information yourself to an extent. Not everyone has the time to do uh, extreme deep dives, and that's not what I'm, I'm saying either. But, you know, it, it's worth taking the time to uh, learn about this stuff uh, for yourself and, and and make your own conclusions and not just depend on on the voice of one person or, or any group of people uh, to tell you what's what about everything. Because, mm, you know, we're uh, humans. We can be wrong sometimes. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I was creating the juxtaposition uh, with um, with what you would term mainstream media. I don't like the term mainstream media. Michael Mattis makes a good argument saying that it's uh, corporate media. Because, I mean, Joe Rogan, for example, yeah. is more mainstream than um, than mainstream media. Um, uh, fair, but, fair point. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but they claim to know the truth, hence the term fact checkers. Yeah. Um, well, they, that, that's how they say it uh, or how they describe themselves. But mm -hmm. I think, you know, behind the scenes, they're acutely aware of the conflicts of interest and, and that, you know, these organizations uh, that Facebook hires as well as Facebook itself are very much interwoven into the national security or State Department uh, apparatus of the United States um, and have lots of conflicts of interest about uh, major narratives, uh, spe uh, specifically when it comes to foreign policy. Um, and you know, this is their info war. Uh, and so they have Ex a lot of, you extremists. know, the U.S. government, right. So the U.S. government has like lots of specialists in different branches, the State Department, the military, and elsewhere that are like information warfare specialists, essentially. Um, and, you know, they have different names for these different positions, but really uh, a lot of it just comes down to that and trying to, uh, you know, uh, massage narratives so they fit what uh, they, you know, need them to fit for a specific mm -hmm. policy goal. Um, and it's really about manipulating people's perceptions uh, online and on television. Uh, and also in print to a lesser extent these days. But um, uh, a lot of what's gone on just in the past couple of years uh, depended hugely on people's perception of what was happening more than what was actually happening. Uh, the, the people, uh, you know, actually dying from COVID-19 and not with COVID-19, right? You know, that change in and of itself is enough to create a very different perception than the reality of what's going on, right? And I'm sure you've explored that with a lot of other people. Uh, on your podcast before, but it's just one example of of many, mm. uh, just in the context of of COVID, really about how it's manipulating perceptions. In this case, to make something seem much worse than it actually was, uh, in order to capitalize on that fear um, and use, you know, exploit the opportunity uh, that this presented uh, to the power establishment for various ends. You've actually spoken before about uh, Facebook and its uh, links to um, intelligence. And one of one of your strengths actually is researching a central intelligence. 
What is that link with Facebook? Okay, so with Facebook, it's not really so much the CIA, as some people like to claim that, uh, but really it's more tied into um, efforts to resurrect a failed DARPA program that was called Total Information, uh, well, it, that was within the Information Awareness Office. So one of those was Total Information Awareness, or TIA, um, and the one that Facebook is essentially a resurrection of is called LifeLog. Um and people noted the similarities for year, uh, for years, uh, so I'm not the first to note that, but I think I am the first to note uh, the role of Peter Thiel in going around trying to resurrect specifically uh, all of these information awareness office programs. And he basically created a privatized version of total information awareness that we know today as Palantir. Um, which contracts for all 17 U.S. intelligence companies and various banks and corporations as well. They have a public and, and private sector thing, and they're very involved in pre-crime, all of the things that Total Information Awareness was going to do. But that was going to be a public-private partnership, and they realized that the, the outrage uh, was about having the military directly involved because DARPA... Uh, is a branch of the Pentagon. Um, and so basically what they were uh, looking to do was to recreate the whole thing as a purely private sector venture, realizing that they wouldn't get so much uh, uh, complaints from the government so, or from the public and the, and the media. Um, and so they went and sought out the... Uh, the aid of Richard Pearl, uh, the crazy neocon that was one of the architects of the Iraq war and was also in the... Um, and the Reagan administration to basically help them recreate uh, total information awareness uh, at the same time they were setting up Palantir. Um, and then Peter Thiel ends up becoming the main investor in Facebook in the same period as well. Um, and then uh, that really uh, was was the event that allowed Facebook to become a viable business and was sort of molded, uh, became sort of molded to literally be the analog to the LifeLog program. So some people think, uh, so LifeLog was also, oddly enough, shut down the same day that Facebook as a company launched. And some people take that. It is, a, it is an odd coincidence, but uh, I don't, I didn't really personally find evidence that Facebook was literally set up with the plan to be LifeLog. I think it was more like it, it had the potential to be that. And then they, um, Mark Zuckerberg and Dustin uh, Muscovitz, the, the Facebook co-founders, ended up teaming up with a guy named Sean Parker, who had uh, allegedly been contacted by the CIA and like recruited by them when he was a teenager. Uh, Sean Parker, oh, sorry, uh, from Napster. Yes, mm -hmm. the one in the same. So he's the one that connected them to Thiel. Um, it just not 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 that long after uh, they had uh, created Facebook. Uh, so between Parker and Thiel, that seems to really be where the idea of using Facebook as a vehicle to uh, recreate the LifeLog program. Uh, you know, that's essentially uh, what happened there. And uh, in the years since, you know, Facebook has sort of had uh, weird inroads with DARPA. Like they hired uh, the former director of DARPA, Regina Dugan. Uh, to run their uh, creepy uh, uh, DARPA equivalent within Facebook, which used to be called Building 8 and is now sort of splintered off into different groups like Facebook Reality Labs. And they're trying to make all these like uh, wearables that are brain machine interfaces, but that you wear them on your wrist and it's supposed to read your mind and all that stuff. That's uh, Regina Dugan. She used to do that stuff for DARPA, then Google, and then and then Facebook and, and now basically does it for the Welcome Trust, uh, which is sort of like uh, roughly, I guess you could sort of describe it as a, sort of like a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but based in the mm. UK. It has a very different history and, and stuff, but it's, it's, it's a similar 
uh, function in terms of its ability or its history and, and ability to manipulate um, medical research. Um, and, and things like that. So basically, she's working for them now with a bunch of uh, transhumanist um, medicine programs. Uh, anyway, also looking looking for extremists. Uh, what, <laughs> uh, what, what do you mean by that? I don't know if she. Uh, I don't know if that program. Is, well, is, Facebook. Oh, Facebook. Right. Uh, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's part of what they're designed to do, right? So the this whole LifeLog program. Um, they, they framed it in, in the, like all DARPA programs, they, they had a mm. sales pitch for it, but then, you know, they admit in the fine print, it has really great applications for Homeland or, or national security. Right. And so LifeLog was one of those things is basically it was about creating a, a profile, um, different episodes of a person's life. And it would be able to reconstruct a narrative about an entire person's life, um, among other things, um, and, uh, how that could be used to profile people and that it could profile it. It was also um, meant to profile the the type of media that people consume, people's purchasing mm. uh, um, decisions, uh, what ads they clicked. I mean, this is all stuff Facebook obviously does <laughs> uh, today. You know, so in retrospect, it's it's quite clear. But um, you know, um, in the years uh, following its founding, Facebook openly collaborated with the NSA, for example. Um, as not just them though. I mean, it was Microsoft and Google and Apple and all the other guys. Um, so they're, they're, throughout Silicon Valley, including Facebook, there's just a, a, a consistent involvement of uh, the national security uh, state, whether it's from the military or the intelligence angle uh, within these things. And a lot of it has been based around uh, data mining and profiling. Mm. But the other plan for LifeLog uh, wasn't just profiling people. It was to uh, mine so much data as to create a what they called a humanized AI that it create, could create an artificial intelligence algorithm that would like suscept, uh, more successfully mimic people. Um, you know, <laughs> when it come across so robotic. Um, and so it had some different, um, I guess, sub programs. One of them was called PALS, which sort of was something like a, a personalized assistant that learns with you is sort of how they framed it. You know, it, it learns over time and acts human. Um, but it's, you know, it, it, all of that sort of ties into this whole uh, broader transhumanist uh, stuff Meta going metaverse. on. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, so it's no coincidence that Facebook gets into the metaverse either, because that's essentially uh, something that was planned out in <laughs> uh, by the military, um, you know, a long time ago. And uh, you can even argue the Internet in general <laughs> uh, yes. because of ARPANET and things like that. So, But isn't there something poetic about uh, Facebook being labeled a, an extremist organization in Russia? <laughs> well, you know, yes, uh, in in a way, because they they really uh, are in a sense because of the uh, world they're trying to usher us into. Um, mm. Not just the one where you know whatever you click on while using Facebook can get you labeled an an extremist, or posting the wrong thing on Facebook can get you labeled an extremist. But also this idea that we have to go, uh, we should spend more of our time living in a virtual reality and should forego. Um, you know, actual human social connection. You know, it's really ironic that people like Mark Zuckerberg claim that their um, Facebook's whole purpose is to better connect people, but in reality, it's uh, <laughs> it, it's destroyed um, regular healthy socialization, especially for young people that start using mm -hmm. it as, as a, at a really young age, which has increasingly happened um, over the past several years. Um, and, and it's not really just Facebook exclusive either, you know, smartphones in general. 
Uh, it's not really common, uh, uncommon where I live in Chile anyway to see a bunch of teenagers get together to like hang out, but they don't end up talking. They're just all on their phones in a circle around each other, uh, you know, and I think a lot of adults do that um, as well to a great extent. So, you know, more connected than ever, but, you know, a lot of people are uh, more unhappy than ever also. And also another thing that's worth mentioning about Facebook is that, you know, they've done studies about how they can manipulate people's news feeds and what they see through algorithms to intentionally make them more depressed and miserable. Um, why would they be conducting studies like that? You know, because people that are miserable and depressed and feeling disconnected um, or fearful um, are much easier to manipulate and control than people who are not. So I, I think there are things that are, um, I guess, uh, psyops, psychological operations that are planned. Um, and then there are things that happen in, in the course of different goals uh, these people are uh, are pursuing that don't go according to plan. And then they sort of scramble to sort of uh, do something to contain it, you know, uh, whether that's trying to manipulate a certain narrative or uh, orchestrating another okay, event yeah. to distract yes, from, a great example. from that or something. Yes, a great example, and this is very much part of the zeitgeist. We know that Putin is a globalist. Uh, he also has some degree of wanting to implement uh, digital the digital control grid, which is exactly yeah. the same as what they do what they want to do in the West. But the invasion or incursion in Ukraine might have been off script, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what you know. The I don't claim to know exactly what happened. I've only written one article on Ukraine. Um, what I think may have happened is that they were sort of, um, uh, the Zelensky of Ukraine met with the CIA heads uh, in January, right before they started being like, Russia's going to invade all of the time. Um, it's a great so, article. so I think. Um, it's possible, given Zelensky's claim uh, very publicly at the Munich Security Conference, we're thinking about getting nukes and like all of this other stuff. The The idea was to cross repeated red lines where even if, you know, Putin is in uh, in line with sort of the, the broader global agenda, there's no way he could have allowed that to happen and not had some sort of uh, problems domestically from military leadership, from example. So you can argue, I think, that they were sort of... Um, uh, you can make the argument that they were sort of forced into doing something. Uh, but obviously, you know, when you're forced to respond to something, there's a lot of different ways you could potentially respond. Uh, you know, I don't really uh, know, uh, really want to comment, to be honest, um, on, you know, how much of this was pre-planned and how much wasn't and how much was spontaneous. Because, uh, to be honest, I don't really uh, know that. Beyond the fact that I do know uh, that the CIA has been actively planning to turn Ukraine into the next uh, Syria um, or um, something of that nature uh, for several years, at least going back to 2015, uh, 2015, 2017, somewhere in that in that year range. And they've been pretty open about that just uh, uh, since this uh, recent escalation um, of the conflict there, um, you know, with people like Hillary Clinton saying, we're going to repeat the model that we did in 1980s Afghanistan, where we armed mm. the CIA uh, principally, but other groups too, and fronts and all of that stuff, uh, armed and trained and uh, supported the Mujahideen, uh, who later became uh, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, she's literally saying on national television, let's do that again. That worked out so well. 
the first time. Let's repeat that. And, and you know, also she cited Syria and she was Secretary of State uh, when the U.S. Uh, you know had uh, timber sycamore and all these other things to literally uh, destroy the state of Syria uh, to the greatest extent possible. Um, which Hillary Clinton's emails uh, later revealed that it was she was essentially uh, interested in doing that because it would be good for Israel for Israeli foreign policy interests. Um, but oh, nice. uh, yeah, it's it, it's increasingly common. Um, well, it, it really has been since, um, you know, the early uh, 2000s, if not before then. Sure. Um, the term conspiracy and conspiracy theory often comes up. Now, I find it weird that people are so scared of this term. I mean, Julius Caesar was conspired against. This is thousands of years ago. Conspiracies happen on a daily basis. Why, Whitney, do you think there is such this weird dogmatic fear of talking about this kind of thing. Um, right. So as, as you correctly pointed out, like conspiracies are a real thing. It's actually something you can be charged with in the US as a crime and go to court and have to prove you didn't conspire uh, about something. Uh, is that your, is that your baby? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, he um, is you unhappy. You um, no, it's okay. Um, it, I'll, I think I'll be informed if it uh, becomes necessary. Um, but you know how how babies can be, I guess. Um, anyway, um, conspiracy theory, right? So you know, this is a term that that has been weaponized uh, really so. ever since uh, the CIA uh, went too far and got involved with plots uh, to kill a sitting president of the United States uh, in coordination with organized crime, which by the what? way, the CIA Whitney. and organized crime- uh, That was random, that was a random event. Please. Yeah. Well, that's what they like. Well, that's really where this term conspiracy theorist came from, because a lot of people that were um, involved in shady events uh, encircling mm -hmm. uh, the assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy uh, ended up randomly having positions on the commission, the Warren Commission, to investigate mm -hmm. those events. And people that pointed that out uh, were called conspiracy theorists uh, by uh, CIA media assets and and other individuals linked into this uh, this group, and uh, you know it, that's really uh, where it began. But the idea was to sort of um, I forget the exact term for it, but sort of uh, basically uh, use dismissal through laughter, like uh, basically to uh, have that applied to something and. Uh, train people so that when they see or hear that term, uh, they don't look into what the person's actually saying. They just laugh at them and then dismiss it. And that's uh, pretty much exactly what's happened. Um, and they've been developing and and uh, cultivating that idea since the 60s. So, you know, it's uh, several decades um, has gotten us here, um, which is unfortunate because also in that same period of time, you have extreme media consolidation taking place in the U.S. as well. So people that, you know, assume that the media landscape of the 1960s uh, is the same as it is today are sorely, <laughs> sorely mistaken. Um, and I think there's plenty of uh, evidence for that. Um, and a lot of people in corporate uh, mainstream media uh, like to dismiss or completely ignore or ridicule uh, the work of people uh, like myself instead of, you know, engage with it because they see themselves as superior to me uh, because, you know, maybe they 
you know, studied journalism at some fancy school um, where they were taught, you know, a particular dogma uh, and they like to stick in, in those, you know, they were taught about who's a journalist and who's not mm. and all of this stuff. And in the sort of the era of fake news, um, I think that's sort of uh, been increasingly aggravated uh, in the sense that uh, they see themselves sort of at war with the people propagating fake news and they're the arbiters of truth, even though a lot of these corporate media outlets have been proven to um, have been wrong or lied and not issued corrections or, uh, you know, pretty much blatantly engaged in uh, <laughs> uh, just saying really insane stuff. People like Rachel Maddow, for example, you know, there's been no accountability for her just saying like random crazy stuff that wasn't true um, for the past several years. Um uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a really crazy information landscape these days, but I think a lot of what we're seeing now, the extreme censorship really got off to uh, it's uh, escalated, started to escalate to where it currently is today um, uh, with the election of Trump really uh, in the US. Um, and that also uh, brought a lot of stuff related to conspiracy theories uh, uh, to the forefront in relation with that and saw the further weaponization of that term, I would argue, in that period, in large thanks to, um, you know, things like QAnon, for example. Uh, which basically was limited hangout, but from the other side, um, mm. <laughs> in a sense. Controlled, having, controlled opposition. Well, yeah, and also like mixing stuff that's real, like about Jeffrey Epstein, for example, that the mainstream media would not touch with stuff that's literally just made up. <laughs> so that people in corporate media, mainstream media can say, oh, they're saying this about Epstein, but they're also saying this, so we're just mm. going to tell you it's all crazy because someone threw this like curveball that doesn't make any sense on top of real um, information about this particular event. Right. And you because know there, there, are, there is a history of uh, intelligence operatives in the United States and elsewhere uh, conducting sexual blackmail operations and extortion rings with minors. Uh, so Epstein is not the only one. Uh, and there are uh, really great journalists like Nick Bryant is a great example who wrote a piece about uh, the Franklin scandal, uh, which went all the way up to the White House uh, during uh, the, the days of uh, George Bush Sr. Uh, and there's been a, a big effort to sort of, whoop, you know, totally ignore, dismiss uh, that despite the evidence to the contrary. And Nick Bryant used to write for mainstream, uh, totally mainstream corporate magazines um, in New York. Uh, he was really uh, well respected by his peers and, and touching this issue just made him radioactive, right? Um, I think ultimately it's done to obfuscate the true extent of, of the crimes that we're facing and how the lack of accountability for those crimes over the decades has just made those same actors uh, more and more brazen with the CIA being one, right? So if you mm -hmm. believe, for example, that the CIA was involved in the assassination of uh, a sitting president and then they're later involved with things like iran contra and flooding the u.s domestically with drugs from uh latin america uh and then later involved in something like 9 11 for example um and they got away with all of that and where wh and, where's, where's and, the limit for these people they think they can get away with anything and they don't have to necessarily uh not be sloppy about how they do mm. stuff because they are sloppy a lot of the time uh what they have to do instead is control the perception of a majority of the public and that's what this info war is really about and so the term conspiracy theorist is really instrumental uh, in all of this because 
I think they use it specifically uh, when there's a topic or a person whose work they don't want people to look at at all because of this trained response in the public to just dismiss uh, what they're saying, right? So um, if they want, uh, if they uh, feel particularly threatened by something, uh, I think that's when they, they bring out that, uh, that particular term uh, be- to prevent people from even engaging with the material at all. And the media... The media, I mean, is very, very to blame for this. And I mean, they even conspire. For example, the Trusted News Initiative. Uh, yeah, and, and there's also, um, you know, uh, like the, these new news rating ventures uh, like NewsGuard uh, <laughs> that I wrote about when they first started. I think it was like the beginning of 2019, uh, back when I worked for uh, Mint Press News. Uh, basically, NewsGuard is, you know, they give this traffic light system. They're now going to be on the schools of almost all public schools in the U.S. because they teamed up with one of the biggest and most corporate um, teachers unions in the U.S. really recently. And they have all these conflicts of interest with big pharma um, and at giant advertising firms like the, the publicist group um, and just a uh, an insane amount of conflicts of interest. And one of their co-founders uh, was actually caught several times literally making crap up in his Wall Street Journal columns. <laughs> uh, uh, Lewis Gordon Krovitz, I believe is his name. The other co-founder, Steve Brill. Uh, but the Krovitz guy uh, claimed, uh, wrote some article about like, I guess it was about Xerox or something. I can't remember exactly what the topic was about, but the company Xerox. And he cited sources. And then when those people were contacted asking if they'd actually told them that they were like, no, no. So anyway, that's the guy telling you what's fake news and not at NewsGuard. So good, good. Why? Why is the truth so, so dangerous? Well, I think it all comes back to this issue of perception. I think if people actually knew the extent of uh, the crimes that have been committed by certain actors over the period of several decades um, and how they've been consistently lied to about numerous Mm. world events um, and numerous uh, realities uh, that inform our present, uh, they'd be really mad, right? So ultimately... Um, and sort of what I, I show in this book I'm writing, which is sort of about Epstein and sort of about a lot more stuff, is um, at least in the context of the U.S., which has been the superpower in the post-World War II era, right? In World War II, uh, the precursor of the CIA, the Office uh, of Strategic Services, teamed up with organized crime in the U.S., specifically the National Crime Syndicate, which was basically a meeting, a union of the Italian mafia and the Jewish mob. Um, And basically that alliance was justified as, you know, necessary because it's, it's the war, you know, a wartime necessity excuse. But after the war, uh, that alliance continues essentially. Um, And you see that reflected in how a lot of CIA assassination teams when the CIA was first created in 1948 uh, included a lot of mob guys and how uh, a lot of the efforts of the CIA in Cuba were very much enmeshed with the business interests of people like Mayor Lansky and a lot of these other uh, big uh, organized crime figures who basically ran uh, pre-Castro Cuba um, before they had their revolution in the late 50s. And things like that. And and basically, you know, um, there's really at, at, at this point uh, no way to disentangle organized crime from the CIA or intelligence in general. Um, they essentially uh, are one and the same at this point because the CIA is basically um, what they do is uh, not necessarily 
I think it should be pretty obvious. Uh, they're not about protecting the U.S. as a country or the American mm. people. It's about protecting spe uh, specific interests, uh, financial interests, more often than not, of powerful people. Um, and you see that, uh, for example, the first director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, uh, was a Wall Street lawyer. And uh, some of the first coups um, that the CIA did under Dulles, like in Guatemala, was done on behalf of, uh, you know, cor giant corporations and meshed with the Wall Street interest he once uh, represented, like United Fruit Company. Um, you know, so you, yeah, there's, a, there's a long history of this. You know, that's sort of like the genesis in a sense. Um, but it's been going on for... Um, a very long time. And in the case of organized crime, th these businesses uh, or grifts or whatever you want to call them, uh, schemes uh, that they've been running, which uh, extend to sex trafficking, arms trafficking, drugs trafficking, all of this stuff, um, it, they have to keep it going or it'll mm. collapse and they'll get found out. So they just had to keep doing crazier and crazier shit to keep it going. And eventually um, they can't do it anymore. And so in order to maintain their purchase their, their privileged positions they have to collapse it all uh but make sure that when it collapses they have a way to maintain uh their control and prevent people from finding them out and i would argue we're in the end game of that to an extent right now because if this has been going on since the 40s arguably even earlier mm -hmm. um just in terms of the power the, uh, of the power structure you know i'm describing obviously there's stuff like the round table movement and some of these like old banking dynasties of europe uh people like cecil rhodes and all of that stuff you know that obviously like predated uh this cia organized crime nexus you know um so i mean there's agendas and uh, elite factions that have been looking to control people and install neo-feudalism for a long time but really you know there they, it's become so inbred that like a lot of them are so like intertangled that if you take one guy down you you risk exposing all of it which sort of happened with epstein in a sense um jeffrey epstein uh was no longer useful to the intelligence agencies he was serving and so he got taken out and they didn't want people to go too far into epstein because it goes i mean he's woven throughout a ton of stuff like the 2008 financial crash um iran contra um and obviously sexual blackmail the affairs of the maxwell family uh which includes robert maxwell who was uh worked on behalf of israeli intelligence and the promise software scandal i ran contra and other things a lot of crazy stuff the more you pull on those threads the more uh you see all you, you see what's really going on you know and they don't want people the emperor's clothes. Hmm. right so um <laughs> before they can do this controlled demolition of everything and install what we see now as this control system uh really you know they don't want the perception but the, the perception of the public at large to shift in such a way that it's not in their favor where they can't uh cleanly do this clamp down um, and that's why, you know, I do uh, what I do and a lot of people do what they do uh, in this line of work is because, you know, I don't really care anymore if people call me names or like, haha, Whitney, crazy conspiracy theorist. I don't care um, because there's uh, I, I really see it as us being in an, in an end game of sorts. I have kids. I don't want them to live in this crazy, insane world. It's time mm. that there was some accountability for all the crazy uh, stuff that's happened uh, over the past several decades. And there's a lot of it. I mean, the past two years alone, uh, I know a lot of us, especially those of us that are parents and have seen how all this COVID mania has affected our kids, especially, but not, you know, uh, uh, ourselves as well. You know, I mean, do we really want to let them 
get away with even more and make our lives no. even more miserable. I mean, I, I, I'm not doing that. No way. I mean, you're a researcher and a very good one at that. Probably the best that I've seen. And oh, thanks. But um, uh, well, I was just butchering you up now for my next question. <laughs> um, no, how do you how do you figure out what is true? I mean, what what are the markers? Uh, what I do is I just wait uh, and, wa and, and watch uh, for uh, something that indicates to me the best place to start. So I don't like start with the same. Uh, fact or mention um, for everyone. I think it's very specific to the person, your relationship with them, the context uh, in which your conversation's taking place. Um, and I don't really try, uh, and I, I'm not aggressive uh, at all with this stuff. You know, if people, especially with COVID, want to be like, oh, I can't wait for my fourth dose, I'm like, all right, whatever. Your body, your choice. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but I do try and, and see where I can sort of uh, start to whittle away at the perceptions they have about things, uh, because there's always something, you know, mm. in the, in these officially constructed narratives, there, there, there's always uh, sort of a weakness somewhere. You, uh, what I do is I sort of just wait until it becomes apparent. And then I, I bring something up, but nicely. And I act if they've heard about, you know, have you heard about this or something like that? I try and uh, make it in a non-threatening way. Cause there are some people that are like, Oh, you idiot. Bah! Uh, you know, and I, I, the people will shut down if you do that side. But in, in the case of humor, humor can be a really powerful way of reaching people too, but I don't really, uh, that's not my specialty. I'll leave that to people like you and uh, people like uh, Tim Dillon, you know, <laughs> to, to make jokes about this stuff or, uh, um, uh, Trevor, uh, sorry, I can't remember his full name, uh, but he used to do Whitest Kids You Know, uh, and they had a lot of uh, very uh, insightful, uh, humorous skits about like the CIA and uh, the Bush family uh, and things like that. He randomly uh, died. I, I don't know. Some people thought it was really suspect because he was tweeting about some stuff. I don't know, but uh, it, the, the it, humor in, in like the um, the John Stewart Daily Show, even from a mainstream level, was able to like inform people about stuff. Because I remember this because I was in high school uh, when that was popular, and people like got their news in my my high school got like their news and were informed about the world from watching that because it was funny, uh, and not so much from like the evening news even. Because humor has like that way of sort of drawing people in and sort of relaxing them. And at the same time, like that relaxation makes them more open uh, to seeing things differently. Let's say labeled a conspiracy theorist or you get censored. Would you consider those as potential markers for being over the target? Um, the way I do it, uh, not necessarily. So I think it is with, with some people maybe, and it depends on the person you're talking to. So like if they give you that response because they're obviously scared uh, to do any sort of self-reflection or any deeper looking into what you're saying, uh, then maybe that does, you know, I think in that case, that probably does mean that. Um, but, you know, the way I sort of do it, like I mentioned earlier, I sort of just try and uh, exploit uh, cracks as I see them, I guess, mm. in a way that's like nice and friendly. So, you know, normally I just sort of 
do that over time. Uh, and I, I, you know, at least here in Chile, I've been pretty, you know, successful. I don't get called a conspiracy theorist uh, a lot <laughs> uh, because I try and be really careful about it because I know also that uh, Chile is one of the most propag uh, propagandized populations I've ever experienced. Um, it, what do you mean the, by that? the state, the state media apparatus is, is like, he is, is very controlled. Uh, most people just watch TV news. A lot of people, um, that uh, there isn't really an independent media here at all to be honest um wow. and so and it, and it's, it's very different yeah so like spanish language media landscape uh, is very lacking compared to the english language uh Eng english speaking world which has a huge advantage uh which is why i um you know sometimes find it disappointing that that people don't realize that <laughs> uh but it, it you know there's a lot to be said about language barriers and information access in this particular space um but what i have noticed over the course of covid is that it's made uh, uh basically there QAnon, that type of operation or whatever they've been very successful with doing that in the spanish language because people don't have the discernment because they're not used to having alternative sources of information and having to like sort through it um and so it's been uh, it's been sort of a struggle, but there are things, especially now in Chile, uh, which I think is definitely well, it definitely is the most vaccinated uh, country in Latin America for sure. Um, and people are starting to figure uh, out that was maybe not such a good idea, um, ever so ever so slowly. Uh, but it's, it's all really, climate it change. It's just climate change that's causing all the heart disease. Well, I I hope they're less. Uh, uh, willing to buy into some of those uh, other narratives, right? But when it came to the vaccine and stuff, it's been um, it's been really extreme. And there's been a vaccine pa passport in force since I think it was like last May or something. It's been it's been quite a while, um, and it's uh, it's been very problematic. Uh, I think Chile is one of the few countries in the world that uh, vaccinates kids three and up, oh. um, and it's uh, you know. It's a real mess. Uh, and they've been doing the fourth dose since January. Um, so we'll see what happens. But a, a lot of people are starting that 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 bought into it before and even got like the first two doses and all of that are really starting to be like, uh, I don't like where this is going. So hopefully things will shift. But, uh, you know, there's this new government in power that I don't trust at all because they're very clearly trying to sigh out people acting like they're the change, like an Obama style kind of thing. Um, and so, of course, when they do things that aren't changed, they get all the apologists being like, give him more time. And the same stuff that people heard with Obama, um, it's going to be that and that's going to slow, slow down any sort of resistance because the guy that ran against the current Chilean president um, has a, a complicated history. Um, his dad was a literal Nazi. Um, he was very oh. much uh, 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 enmeshed with the Pinochet structure, but I mean, so is, I mean, that's the whole Chilean right wing. <laughs> so it wasn't really exclusive to him anyway. Um, but he was, he was oddly enough, the, the fascist candidate as he was, as he's often branded, um, was, was the only one of the against vaccine passports, <laughs> which I thought was kind of weird. Um, you know, okay. So, uh, the fascist guy is against medical fat you know, medical fascism. That's, um, that's a new one.
Uh, but it's you know it, it's really complicated the political realities right because i don't i didn't like that candidate for a lot of reasons mm. but i also don't like you know this whole medical tyranny biosecurity state crap um because it's impacted my personal life a lot um in you know a really uh negative way and i don't want my 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 kids to have to deal with the stuff here because i mean it, they try and have you mass kids here two years and up uh it's it's a mess so um you know, I'm I'm really frustrated with the whole thing. So, but I come think it's Africa. really nuts. Uh, oh, oh, what? I said, come to Africa because we listen. The failed state is a great place to be. They they're <laughs> they're too they're too incompetent and inept to to oppress us. Yeah, well, that's what people said about Mexico, and they were like, maybe you should go to Mexico, but I don't know how I feel about that, because, you know, maybe it's not the state that's the problem right now, but uh, any government can be cooed, uh, so you sort of have to worry about the local environment. And that's part of why I've, um, you know, ended up staying here. Um, it's very cheap to go off grid. Uh, there's a very... Um, it's uh, a lot of people here know how to, how to produce the things they consume and need to survive. Um, it's very easy to heat your home and your water with mm. just a uh, firewood and stuff and set all that stuff up. Um, you know, and it, it, like I said, it's pretty inexpensive. Um, I think it's really beautiful here. Uh, I live in the South, you know, uh, Chile is, is a very long skinny country. Uh, I would never live in the North, uh, where all the mining is, but of course a lot of the mining is coming, uh, down here. Uh, and, uh, that's going to be happening, happening in your neck of the woods as well, because, uh, I don't know if you, uh, pay attention a lot to this sort of a uh, fourth industrial revolution, uh, stuff going on. Right. But that involves a lot of mining, um, mm. of rare earth minerals and different things. And most of that is in the Andes in South America and in Africa. And yeah. they, uh, there's these, um, mining ventures, including one called cobalt metals or cobalt metals, yes. I guess. Uh, that's like all the Silicon Valley guys. Uh, so it's Mark Zuckerberg, the LinkedIn guy, uh, Bill Gates, <laughs> Jeff Bezos. And they're literally, they literally say on their website, like, uh, we're going to find all the lithium and all the cobalt and it's going to be ours basically. Um, and a lot of that is in, uh, is where I live actually. Um, in South Chile, because uh, there's some famous like lakes and rivers that have this really uh, deep blue color uh, that's like really amazingly beautiful. And it looks like they dyed it because it's like unusually blue. And that's because of cobalt in the mountains. So they'll be coming here and they're trying to already. I actually had to move um, houses because they're opening up a mine in what used to be a touristic lake uh, to, to mine the shore because they found something and they weren't going to be able to do it. But then all this water in the lake just disappeared, like half the water <laughs> just magically disappeared. And then the mine's like, oh, well, I guess we can mine the shore now. Uh, and that whole uh, economy there has been built around like lake tourism and they're not going to have any like work now <laughs> uh basically because the mine's going to come and take everything and that's what it and you know that's how it operates i'm not really an expert in how they operate in africa but i have a lot of experience with how they operate in south america and it's brutal it's well, brutal well you've seen that movie with leonardo dicaprio um no because he sucks but <laughs> what's, it, what's it called black blood blood diamond i think it is well, uh, right. i mean mm -hmm. it's uh it's it's we have no rules 
Right. Well, that's how it is in South America. You know, locals complain, we don't want your mine here, get out. And then uh, mm. the leaders of the uh, the local uh, resistance uh, get marched off a, a cliff with a bag on their head by the Peruvian military. <laughs> uh, oh, you laugh, but that's what happens. <laughs> uh, so, you know, these people, you, you know, you don't have rights. That's essentially what it is when you, you come against like a mining conglomerate like that. Uh, the largest uh, car, uh, carbon coal mine sorry it's car carbon in spanish so i get confused uh, but the uh the largest coal mine uh, is in colombia and in order to water down the roads to and from that mine to uh improve visibility uh for the trucks ta uh, taking uh coal out of there uh they diverted the an entire river off of its natural path which was the only Gee. water source for the largest indigenous group of colombia the yu people who have had like uh thousands and thousands of their children die because they have no water and they can't grow food and all of this stuff and they've tried to lobby being like we're the largest indigenous indigenous group uh, you know you should care about us you win and all of these other groups and no they don't care they don't care so um, are we are we living in one giant milgram experiment mm, that's you know that raises a really interesting point um so i think yeah to an extent yeah uh but I think what we're seeing now is a lot of the stuff that hasn't uh, in countries that are democracies, um, a lot of their standards of living have only been as such because uh, of um, things like I just mentioned, like the mining in, in, in South mm. America, right? Um, that type of reality for the people in those communities in South America is basically about to come home to roost for people that, used, that, that are used to living in the first world. Um, and so, um, one of the reasons I got so disillusioned with people my age is that, you know, I like learned about this stuff and was like <laughs> mad and was like, we can't do this to people. It's wrong. And people were like, well, I don't care what happens to people over there. Cause you know, I have Netflix and beer and mm. you know, uh, whatever. And I'm like, but, but no, you know, and, um, mm. and I just, I didn't really fit in. <laughs> You know, um, it, so basically, you know, we have a lot to reconcile with as a human collective, I think. And because this uh, system that they're attempting to install to control everyone, um, you know, um, is, is so global, um, you know, it really needs to sort of, we sort of need to uh, reassess things because people in this the milgram context right have been willing to let horrible things happen to people mm. over there for a long time to allow this system that's fundamentally fucked up uh to yeah. run for so long that now we're about to be hit in the face of a lot of consequences of that and i think a lot of people aren't ready and i was saying this back to people uh in my university mm. <laughs> in like 2012. um so you know i basically was like all right i'm just gonna go to the middle of nowhere and um and uh live out there because <laughs> this is going to come crashing down someday i don't know exactly how but it, this isn't gonna go on like it does feel like that way forever and, you know, I think we need to, as a, as a collective, not fall into this Milgram trap where as long as it's this guy uh, that I can't see, I can only like hear him, I can ignore him if I want and just do what I'm told and blah, 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 um, you know, and I can go about my business and be comfortable. I mean, we really have to 
that's not how we're gonna be able to create the world we want to live in um mm. by by falling back into you know what's easy uh in that sense was the minority report a movie or a documentary well it was written by philip k dick right yes. it was a book originally yeah so a lot of philip k dick stuff was like very predictive um i think i read somewhere that when he died he had like a lot of his ratings sort of rated by the government not unlike Tes like nikola tesla's lab was <laughs> i think that, I, I don't know he he philip k dick knew something uh, uh, so I guess maybe in that sense, you could argue it was basically a, a documentary. I mean, pre-crime is here, uh, for people that aren't, that haven't, mm. uh, had that click for them yet, especially in the U S it's here. Um, mm. it, cause they've already happened. They happened after the January 6th stuff in the U S at the Capitol. Uh, those were the first like pre-crime arrests, uh, that took place. Not the people that were arrested that were at January 6th, but there was a guy who was, um, uh, arrested because of uh, an event that he posted on Facebook and what that event page said. And he was basically arrested because he uh, acted like he was going to do something violent. That's pre-crime. Uh, and I actually think there were actually a few arrests before then because this all started under the Trump administration under William Barr, Bill Barr, um, mm. who is is basically CIA <laughs> for people that don't know. He literally worked for them. Um, and then uh, worked for a law firm that worked for CIA-linked uh, uh, clients. Uh, and then goes and uh, is uh, Bill Casey's emissary during Iran-Contra and then is attorney general for Bush Sr. And then comes back um, to be attorney general for Trump after working at the law firm that defended Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, anyway, Bill Barr um, created this program called DEEP. Uh, which I'm blanking. It's an acronym. I'm blanking on exactly what it, it means now. I think it's like... Um, uh, something about early engagement uh, is what the two E's are. And basically that um, it refers to early engagement with people that haven't committed crimes yet, the people they think might commit crimes. And this is all being, a lot of this has to do with social media. So social media is essentially like your prison. You're helping the government profile you as a domestic terror threat when you're just a regular person and prosecute you for thought crime. Stop using it. Um, you know, uh, I don't have a, a Facebook anymore. I haven't but had one for on several Twitter. years, but I have a Twitter. Uh, yeah, but I mean, part of that I see is like, well, I'm already so out in the open with my views and I'm trying to reach people that are on there, you know, but at this, I, I have mixed feelings about it because my presence on there is keeping people on the platform to a to an extent because like I haven't left so they can still access my stuff there. So it's less mm -hmm. incentive for people that follow me to get off of Twitter, but you really should consider it. Um, because I mean, that's essentially what we're doing is, is feeding, uh, the beast as it were, um, by giving them your data. Um, it's unfortunate. Those very important topics that people should uh, actually be thinking about. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, I would say I'm probably biased. Epstein is one because that's a good way. We all know he's a, a bad piece of crap, right? Um, but it, it offers like a good lens to just how interconnected all of this stuff is. Uh, cause like I said, he, his trajectory is woven out of, uh, woven through a bunch of different events of interest. Um, but really I think uh, a big one is September 11th, 2001. Um, even the people at the nine 11 commission, the chair and vice chair, 
uh, of the commission of the government that was created to uh, write the official story uh, say the that the official story as they wrote it doesn't answer fundamental questions that they were stonewalled by people at the CIA and the military um, and that it's not the full story. So are you talking about that event where uh, uh, a building just fell um, after oh, five yeah, or six uh, hours? Building seven falls into its own footprint in seven seconds with no plane that hit it several hours. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of things there, but it's like, you're totally nutso if you even mention that the official narrative is not true, even though the people that wrote the official narrative say it's not the full story, uh, which is just nuts to me. Uh, but it's sort of this cognitive dissonance crap uh, in the weaponization of the conspiracy theory uh, term or, or meme um, mm. it, to an extreme. And uh, I continue to be really disappointed in people in independent media who uh, want to position themselves as mainstream adjacent and refuse to engage with 9-11 or uh, laugh yeah. at the truthers because, uh, uh, you know, your failure to engage with 9-11 has helped uh uh, inform the failure to engage with COVID stuff and a lot of the stuff that's been going on over the past two years. If more people had spoken up about 9-11, we may not have had to have gone through all of this to the extent that we have um, the past couple years. And so um, as I see it, you know, people in independent media, there's only two reasons for not engaging with uh, the facts about 9-11. Uh, you're uh, either, you either haven't looked into it for yourself and you should say so, or uh, you're a careerist um, and you care more about your career than you do about informing people um, about the truth. It's uh, a pretty big deal. Yeah. So um, I am really out of patience for people in the careerist sphere uh, specifically because it's cowardice. Um, yeah. That's how I see it. And it's not just like that for 9-11. I mean, a lot of the same people that like laugh at the 9-11 truthers, they're so crazy. Um, also, you know, uh, say the same stuff about John F. Kennedy assassination mm -hmm. and a lot of other stuff. Um it, it sucks. And um, uh, one person who's done a lot of damage in that regard has been Noam Chomsky, who sort of, you know, I regard as the ultimate gatekeeper uh, for a lot of things because he sort of opened a lot of people's eyes with his manufacturing of consent stuff. So people assumed that everything he he says is going to be cutting edge and whatever. And he's like, nothing to see with 9-11, nothing to see with Jeffrey Epstein's intelligence ties, nothing to see with the 2008 uh, financial crash. Uh, the Federal Reserve was not involved. Mm. Um, and like all this other stuff, like, no, no. Um, I, anyway, um, but a lot of people like uh, specifically on the progressive left, which makes up a pretty decent amount of uh, alternative media, um, you know, uh, they just like to follow what Noam Chomsky does to an extent. You know, he's sort of like a mini deity uh, for them. And that's been really problematic with COVID, I think. Um, also, you know, sort of having these uh, um, well, deity figures in a sense. Let me quote you and say, quote, unquote, COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, I, I, I intentionally, since it began, have called it the COVID crisis. Mm. Um, and there's a very specific reason for that. Even when I go on more like main, mainstream <laughs> things, uh, that's how I refer. In front of you, there is a crystal ball. What do you see? Oh, man. Okay. So what I really should say is like, I see a better world because we finally figure this stuff out. And, uh, 
blah 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 um i don't know <laughs> uh well you know i i do try and like um inspire in a sense like i don't want to leave people with like a sour note people say my work is really depressing because i don't really identify uh good guys you know so um like in the context of what's going on in ukraine people are like you have to pick a side and either the nato or the good guys or putin's the good guy and uh, I guess if I uh, want to optimistically uh, look in the the crystal ball, yeah, um, I would I would uh, hope to see. I would like to see uh, people uh, finally stop looking for the good guys to be governments or world leaders who have to like mm. uh, curb stomp people to get to where they are, <laughs> basically, and make a bunch of unseemly deals. That's how politics is, like in every country, um, you know. So stop looking for people on the world stage that we're all, you know, having our attention directed towards to be the good guys and realize that the good guys are to be found among the regular people, mm. you know, uh, stop. We need to stop looking for political saviors. I would really like that change to happen because I think once people finally stop feeling like, Oh, well, as long as we vote for the right person or as long as we support Putin or as long as we do this, uh, th things will fix themselves. And uh, no, you have to start taking responsibility um, mm. for creating the better world. And we need to stop waiting for this political savior who doesn't exist to come. And we need to realize that, uh, you know, this good guy, bad guy thing, trying to see all these different world conflicts like, like they were a Disney movie. Disney movie is not reality. Disney movie is Disney movie. Um, and we need to start realizing that the good guys are like regular people like us. And, you know, this whole savior thing is, is a waste of time because we're not building the parallel, the parallel society and the parallel systems we need, uh, to create a better world. And so I would hope that's, uh, my short term crystal ball aspirations. <laughs> We've been we've been speaking about limited and unlimited hangout the entire time, which is why I said you're going to laugh. But where can people find you? Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, so you can find all of my work at unlimitedhangout.com. Uh, I do contribute to some other site, sites, uh, The Last American Vagabond, and to a lesser extent, my former employer, uh, Mint Press News. Um, and all of those articles that I write on other sites, I do republish eventually on Unlimited Hangout. So if you just want a, a compendium, I guess, of all of my stuff, that's uh, really the place to go. I also have a podcast called also Unlimited Hangout because it originally started off as a podcast before it was a site. Um, so you can follow that uh, either uh, through my website, because I do post about it there, uh, but also on Rockfin, R-O-K-F-I-N.com. Uh, and my podcast, I sort of pay well for a couple days, but I always make it public. Uh, I was kicked off of Patreon for my COVID reporting. So, you know, got to make money <laughs> uh, somehow. Um, you know, I got a couple new mouths to feed. Right. So uh, you can. Uh, so, yeah, Rockfin or also I have an RSSS feed, podcasting apps, all of that stuff. Uh, for more information about that, you can just uh, really find it all on my website. But I would really encourage people, like I mentioned about social media, I would encourage you to either go the RSSS feed route or the mailing list route. That way you can be yes. informed of all of my new content without having to engage with social media and you can go straight to the source. 
my page in case censorship does get worse, which it's bound to. I mean, the longer you stay on Facebook and Twitter, the more dependent you are becoming on platforms that have clearly demonstrated what they are. Mm. And you're at an increasingly high risk of losing access to the information uh, you enjoy and that you feel like informs you. Uh, so it's really uh, everyone's uh, in everyone's interest, but also it's a personal responsibility thing to uh, do the thought experiment. If I was kicked out, you know, if, if I lost my social media accounts, how would I follow the people I like to follow? Um, come up with your plan B. <laughs> um, so anyway, I would encourage people to uh, definitely check out the mailing list that you can access through uh, my website as well. Whitney Webb, thank you so much for joining me in the trenches. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. And hopefully we'll do it again. My name is Jim. This is Jim Wolfe, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.